You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, The War We Fight, our final lesson in the Spiritual Conflict module, Philip Edwards will outline Satan's strategic plan to destroy the people of God. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can study past modules, register for future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome to this fourth and final week on spiritual warfare. We've been looking at the history uh, of what has happened uh, about the fall of Lucifer, he becomes Satan and then he tempts uh, uh, Adam and Eve and then uh, the history of it all really, how, how it all came about. Tonight we're moving on to what affects us. We are of that the, the, the sons and daughters of, of Adam, as it were, and how does his presence in the world affect us now? So we're looking at the fight that we're involved in, the battle that we're involved in. But let's, as we normally do, let's pray before we uh, look into this subject tonight. Heavenly Father, we just thank you because of your promise always to be with us, always to help us. You've sent your Holy Spirit to come and live inside of us, to guide us, into all truth. Lord, we commit ourselves to hear from you, to understand, Lord, to, for you to broaden uh, our knowledge, our wisdom about the things of God and to know you better. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're involved in a battle then. In fact, the battle started right at the beginning. We saw how Lucifer came in uh, well, he was Satan then, really, how he came into the Garden of Eden and he tempted uh, first Eve, but he tempted them both together. They both fell together. It was uh, Adam and Eve. And God says this in Genesis 3 and 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So we hadn't got very far into this uh, recreation of the world where immediately God is declaring there is going to be a battle between you Satan and this lady's children the people of the earth these were words pronounced by God himself this enmity was not like a, a small skirmish uh, it wasn't a minor breakout of hostilities it was something serious it was a long protracted conflict that has continued down the centuries. A conflict that has lasted for thousands of years. A worldwide war. No, even bigger than that. A universal war. It's involved the heavens and the earth because we know that Satan's power base is in the heavens. We know the heavens were cleansed by Jesus himself. Some consider it strange that Christians should even speak in these terms about war, when the gospel is supposed to be the gospel of peace. And we know that one of the titles of Jesus is the Prince of Peace. So why all this war? Why all this conflict? Why, 
why is it like this? The peace Jesus has come to bring in this world will only be realised with the overthrow of all the rebellion and lawlessness. Remember, rebellion was at the very heart of all this. Our sin, the root of all sin in our life is rebellion because we don't want to submit our will to what God's will is. We rebel. We want our own way. We want to do what we want to do. So all rebellion, all lawlessness will be put away with. That's yet to come. It's not here yet. We know that in our own world, in our own lives. There's a verse or a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15 and 25 and 27 says this, for he, this is talking of Jesus, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Jesus is the king he is at this point the king of kings. He was of the line of David. And when he returns the second time, he comes as the king. He came as a baby the first time. The second time he comes, he comes as a king. And he will continue this battle. He will bring it to an end. And all the enemies of God will be under his feet. That's why God sent him, to destroy the works of the evil one. When he went to the cross, that was a big major part in destroying Satan's uh, weapons that he could use and, and disarming him. We, we know about that scripture. But he must come and then destroy the enemy. So when Jesus returns, only then will his enemies be subject to him completely. Scripture tells us they'll all be cast into the lake of fire. The devil will be cast in. Last week we saw that uh, in the uh, chain of events when Antichrist and false prophet, uh, false prophet are cast into the lake of fire, eventually after the millennial reign of Christ, Satan himself is cast into the lake of fire. Then scripture says two others are cast in. Revelation 20 and 14 says, then death, and in that verse in Corinthians we read about the last enemy being death, then death, the last enemy, and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So it appears that uh, death is an angelic being or a spirit of some sort, and Hades is probably the keeper of Hades. So Hades will be finished with, so they will be cast into the lake of fire, and uh, that will be it. That will be the end of all rebellion, and of course Christ then sets up... Um, the new heaven and the new earth. Let's go back now to our present time because this is what I'm supposed to be dealing with tonight, our personal battle. This is something to look forward to. Jesus surprised his disciples with these words in Matthew 10 and 34. He says, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. For <laughs> you'd have thought he did come to bring peace. He said, no, I did not come to bring peace but I came to bring a sword. See, even our saviour is a champion, a fighter, a warrior. He comes to bring uh, conflict, as it were, not with us, but to help us through the conflicts that we have to face. 
It appears also wherever the, the gospel was proclaimed with power in the Holy Spirit, it always brought trouble everywhere. I mean, we read through Acts, everywhere they went, there was trouble and trouble and more trouble. Just remind you, in Philippi, uh, a great big community, really, an enormous city, it says in Acts 16 and 20, these men, referring to Paul and Silas, are Jews, they said, and are throwing our city into an uproar. I mean, how could these two guys cause so much problem? Very easy because the, they were so powerfully used of God and because the, the devil's job was just to shut them down, shut them down all the time. And because he can't do it, but he works in other people to shut them down. Remember, we looked at that verse. We don't fight against uh, people. We're fighting against principalities and powers. And so the, the people were stirred up, as it were, to suppress this. And it caused no end of trouble. When they went to Ephesus, another major uh, community, it says in Acts 19 and 29, soon the whole city was in uproar. And then in Acts 19 and 40, just a couple of verses along, as it is, we, that's the people of Ephesus, are in danger of being charged with rioting. And there was such a commotion about what these few Christians were doing, it was just causing, because uh, Satan was trying to, close everything down. And again, we read about Jerusalem in Acts 8 and 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered. Well, we know at that time, there would have been thousands and thousands of converts in Jerusalem. And it was, it was so, so difficult to be there, they just all had to leave. There was such persecution, I suppose, and being chased out of the place. So everywhere the gospel went, it didn't go with this wonderful message of peace and love your neighbour and being kind to one another. It seemed to bring chaos and struggle and war and strife and things all of the time because the enemy was real, did everything in his power to close it down. And if you've been a Christian for some time or been involved in a church, you know, all the time there is pressure on you all the time not to go, to close it down, to stop opposition all the time because the devil just can't let the kingdom of God expand and increase. He can't allow that to happen. So wherever there's a movement of the activity of God, he immediately goes to close it down. In fact, trouble was all over the world, it says. In Acts 17 and 6, it says this, these men have caused trouble all over the world, and now they've come here. I mean, it's just amazing. Just a handful of guys going around causing such havoc in the world because it is so real. See, it's so powerful, this whole thing. We know in Paul's letters he often uses language pertaining to warfare and battling. Uh, that famous passage in Ephesians 6, 10 and 13. He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Notice the words uh, he's using. Put on the full armour of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers. It's against the authorities. It's against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He definitely knew who he was fighting against. And he knew every time he went to these communities to do something for God, tremendous oppression was upon him all the time. Therefore, he says, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, 
you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Scripture tells us the whole world, the whole world is under the evil one's control. Hmm. Do you know that? It says in 1 John 5 and 19, this is why I say, do you know that? It says, we know that we're children of God. So we can all put our hand up and say, yes, we all know we're children of God. And the next bit says, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So if you know you're a child of God, you should also know that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The whole world. The God of this world. The prince of the power of the air. It's easy to have the idea that we've got the church over here that's very active and uh, is definitely on God's side. And over here, this, in this corner, we seem to have Satan with his violence and his drugs and his rioting and all that evil stuff that's over there. Church over here, Satan over there. And in this middle bit, we're called no man's land, is where all the nice people live. And as though, well, the church doesn't bother them. They let them go. And the evil one doesn't bother them much. He's just concentrating on his few things that are going on in the world. And somehow the rest live in no man's land in the middle, eating and drinking and working, relaxing, sleeping, marrying, daily living, just getting on with life. Phil, we don't really know what you're talking about all this stuff. I mean, I think you've just let your imagination run away with you. I don't see this stuff going on at all. It's just like, it's just all just fairy tales, really. The vast majority, see, thinking they're not involved in this conflict that's going on. Well, it's very interesting. Before Noah, God raised him up and brought the flood, the world was under the control of Satan then. It said every thought and intention of the people was evil all of the time. If you read that account, you're thinking, wow, that must have been a terrible place to live. But we find they carried on just like we are today. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 38. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, they were marrying, and they were giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. Well, it sounds like they were just getting on with life. These were this group in the middle that were neither one way or the other. No, 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 no. It appears that even where Satan is really in control of everything, the people get on with normal activities of life. They carry on just the same. See, most people are blinded to the truth. It's almost like we can keep them in this blind state, but slowly we're undermining the people who live in this middle space, this no man's land. They're being undermined all the time. Even in our own society in the UK, we've become more and more secular. 
when we think back 20, 30, 40 years ago, when we were much more Christian or spiritual, probably something like, I believe in the 70s, like something like 10 million people attended church. That's quite a big number. We're probably down to something like 5 million today. And so we've, we've moved completely from being a Christian country to what I would believe is more a secular country, really, with secular laws and secular government more and more. So when John said the whole world is under the control of the evil one, what did he mean by the whole world? He meant the systems of this world. The world is a wonderful place. It's beautiful. God created it beautiful. And so uh, there's, there's nothing bad about what God has made. But what we see is Satan affected the different systems. What, what, what are the systems then? Education? Philosophy? Politics? Entertainment? Media? Sport? These things that are in themselves not evil, I mean, they're necessary for human interaction, for life. They're, they bring enjoyment to people. They're part of what human life is all about. They're good. They're necessary. But no area of human activity and experience is exempt from the distorting and the damaging influence of Satan's domination. Just think about any of those areas, philosophy, sport, the media. Uh, I mean, can you, as a Christian, keep watching television as comfortably as you used to? You're thinking, oh, I find myself turning the channel or thinking I shouldn't watch this or, or this, uh, you know, more and more. And sport, what's happened there? People who even are passionate about their sport, they think it's, it's being ruined and destroyed either by violence or by money or by something. So everywhere, Satan has an influence on things. And it goes from something being reasonable to something being bad. Romans 12 and 2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have to have our minds renewed all the time because the world is trying to press us into a mould, into a way of thinking. As it becomes more secular, it pushes us in a direction away from godly thinking. Do not conform, it says, any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed. God wants us to think like him. He wants us to have the mind of Christ, remember. Think like me, Jesus actually said. Jesus was never at home in this world. In Luke 9 and 58, this verse, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I remember listening to this verse as a child, really. And of course, when you listen as a child, it's all very naive and simple, isn't it? You just listen to the words. And I thought, oh, that must have been rough, going to bed and not having anywhere to put your head, you know. Because, you know, we all like to lie down and put our heads on a pillow. And of course, um, there were times when he didn't, couldn't sleep, I'm sure. Or he slept out in the open and it was all a bit rough and it was a bit wild. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying... 
the son of man cannot rest in this world. There is nowhere to find rest and relaxation. He could never truly rest because Satan's influence was everywhere. I just thought of when Jesus slept in the back of the boat. He was sleeping, wasn't he? But what was going on around him? Uh, just all this, the storm and, and Satan's, you know, what he was doing with the waters and bringing such fear and turmoil all around him. I thought he was sleeping in the boat, he was tired, but he was never resting in that boat. You can't, he couldn't rest in this world, you see. And can we? Can we just ever really rest? Or is there always something going on? Something, there's a problem Someone's always doing something. Someone's always upsetting the apple cart. If it's not in our home, it's in the workplace, or it's in our church, or it's down the road, or with our neighbours, or it's all the time we can never just rest. There's always some sort of conflict going on. I'm looking forward to the next world. We will experience something that we never experienced in this world. We will experience rest. There'll be no more pain and no more sickness. There'll be no more death and no more fear, no more sin. And we can just rest. We can leave the door open at night and go to sleep quietly in our beds. There'll be rest in the next world. When we were saved, we were born again. We use that expression, to be born again. We became subjects of a new kingdom, the Bible teaches us. It says in Colossians 1 and 13, For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son who he loves. We're in the world, but we don't live in the kingdoms of this world. Well, we sort of do. We live in the United Kingdom. I understand that. And yet we are of another kingdom. We are of the kingdom of God. So we, we struggle to follow everything of this kingdom and the things that he does when it opposes the things of the kingdom of God. We feel uncomfortable sometimes with the language. We feel uncomfortable with the laws that are being passed today, with the way that people are choosing to live. We just feel uncomfortable with it because we're not of this kingdom. We're of his kingdom. His kingdom is unchanging. He never changes his laws or rules because they're perfect. They don't change with... The, the fancies of man, women, or what they want to do or don't want to do, it's established and it's true. So we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're subjects of the kingdom of God. Now, we don't avoid everyday activities. It's part of life. It's not like, oh, this dualism, like everything in the world is, is evil and bad and only God is good, therefore we withdraw ourselves from the world and have absolutely nothing to do with it. I'm, I'm not saying that's the right thing. We're in the world, so we live in this world. We buy, we sell, we eat, we drink, we go out, we're entertained, we, uh, we marry and have grandchildren and all of these. It's all part of life. It's good. But we live according 
to the kingdom principles of God in those activities that are common to all man. We seek to avoid being controlled by the evil one, um, his influence over things. Some have sought to escape this world, haven't they? They've gone to live in convents, maybe, or uh, some sort of monastic life, thinking they'll withdraw themselves, and that's what God requires for them to do only to find that these worldly systems jump over the wall and they get inside the walls of these places as well. And sometimes we hear horrific stories. It could be worse in these places than it is outside. I mean, we, we all hear of these things that go on as well. So building a wall doesn't keep it out. It's about what's going on in the heart of a person. He has to keep the evil world out himself. The word of God says we are the salt and the light in this world. Uh, we're showing up the darkness or we are keeping things pure and right. We're living by the principles in the world, but by the principles of God's kingdom. And isn't this part of the battle? To do what's right to walk in righteousness when we live in a world where we feel it closing in on us, where we have no rest. This is part of the battle that he's called us to, that we don't let our standards slip or, or drop. We know what God has said, and so we hold firm to them. Now, we have to be careful sometimes what we say and how we say it, but we hold fast to the principles of what we believe, what God has established in his word. Maybe the church is sometimes a little too quiet on these issues. It seems to want to get on with everyone, not to upset everyone, to be politically correct with everyone, whereas that doesn't always work. We end up finding ourselves in a more tricky situation. Now, as I talk about this, don't get paranoid, please don't get paranoid. Uh, want to, to run away or, or anything. The world is a terribly corrupt place. It is corrupt without a shadow of a doubt. And uh, you only have to sometimes pull back the curtains a little bit of something to find the real corruption that's there, the evil that's there. It might have a veneer of respectability only when you do something back, you know. And sometimes journalists expose things and you go, whoa, I never thought that you know, a children's club or something, something, something. It all, it all looks respectable, and yet we see it's corrupt. We mustn't be paranoid. We have the Lord. We have his spirit within us. We're to walk carefully in this world. We're to consider the circumstances around us all the time. Is this the right thing to do? How should I conduct myself in this situation? What should I be doing? Even sometimes in the church, we need to consider things carefully because the church can be wooed, as it were, by the world. It can, quite easily. It wants to appear uh, modern or it wants to uh, appear that it's, it's in touch with people and sometimes standards can move a little bit and we have to say, well, I don't want to be old-fashioned about things, but I want to be careful. I want to walk carefully. Consider the circumstances then, the possible consequences as children of the day. Be aware of our enemy all the time, conscious 
that in every area of life, he's seeking to move in. And when we make a stand for the Lord or we stand up for righteousness or for God has, has said, we're going to find him coming and attacking us, ridiculing us, perhaps mocking us. We need to know how he operates, some of his schemes, how he attacks, how he seeks to control and manipulate people all the time, especially those people in positions of influence and power. That's why the word says very clearly, we pray for our leaders because I feel myself only a minion. The only authority I have is when I stand in front of a few people and start to preach to them. That's the only authority I have. But imagine someone who leads a nation or leads a, a great corporation. They have a lot of power over people's lives. And so we should pray for these people that uh, they'd see what the enemy's doing, not though they'd see it in terms of the enemy, but at least know this is the right thing to do and that's the wrong thing to do and they wouldn't be deceived and led astray. We also need to know our position in Christ. All authority was given to Jesus and he said to us, then you go because I delegate that authority to you to act in my place. We need to know the weapons we have at our disposal and what we're called to do in the battle. In 2 Corinthians 2 and 11, it says, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Apparently that word schemes, it translates into his settled war plan. Satan has a settled war plan for, for several reasons. One, God has limited him to what he can do. He cannot dream up more diabolical things. God puts, God puts a perimeter around everything. Okay? He can only attack the church as far as God says he can. Remember that dialogue between uh, Job uh, and uh, all that was going on there with Job's story. He said, the devil said, I want to do this to him. He said, no, no, you know, I set the perimeters of which, what you can do to man. You can't touch him. And then he pushes the boundary a bit, doesn't he? And he, he's allowed to attack his body. So God sets the perimeters around what the devil can do. And he has a settled war plan because it works. Why would you change something that works so well? Okay, so it's settled by God and it's settled in his own mind. Now Satan, he has an army. He has an army of fallen angels who operate in the heavenlies. We've looked at something to do with them. And he also has this army of evil, unclean or demons, unclean spirits, sorry, evil spirits and demons that operate in the bodies of people. They're under his command. He is established in the power base in the heavenlies. I don't think he ever bothers coming down here far too important to do that. You'll never have to meddle with him. Uh, you might have to meddle with some strong demonic spirits because if you're organizing things, you, you do it from the heavenlies. I often think of that picture of um, uh, like the Napoleonic Wars where the generals were on the hills just sending all the troops in to do all the skirmishing and fighting and it was horrendous. And of course when they felt, felt they had lost the battle, they simply turned their horse around and uh, jogged off quietly into the sunset. I think, oh, 
It's awful. And yet that's probably what he's like. So evil, just organising things from the heavenlies. We're to resist and to overthrow not these angels or these demons, but the work that they do. We can't, we can't wrestle with an angel. We can't wrestle, as it were, uh, with a fallen angel or, or with a, a, an evil spirit. We can't do that. We simply give them words. We speak with authority. And of course, God backs up our words and they have to do what they're told to do. When we're coming against these uh, fallen angelic beings, it's mostly prayer. We're engaged in prayer to clear the heavens, to pray about a community, to pray about a family, about, about whatever, because angelic beings are doing things in the heavenlies and we pray for them, as it were, to be removed from cities or from nations, from communities. And here, where evil spirits enter into the lives of people, we command them to go. We tell the spirit it has to leave that person so they're free. So that's, those are the ways in which we fight in this war, warfare. We defend and we attack. Paul's very clear about that. Reading on that passage in Ephesians, uh, you all know it well, Ephesians 6, 14, 18. Stand firm then, he says, with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Putting on the armour of God is not something we recite on a daily practice. I want to just... If you've done that for years, um, I won't be so cruel to you, but, but really it's not about putting things on. It's about virtues that we make sure in our lives. He says, make sure you're truthful with yourself and others and with God. Make sure you're walking in righteousness, that you're doing the right thing. You wake up every day thinking, I will walk in righteousness today. It talks about peace, that the Prince of Peace will govern your life. It talks about faith. It talks about a helmet. It doesn't mention this here, but the helmet represents the hope that we have. So these are virtues, the virtues of Christ that need to be in our life. He says, if you're living by these virtues, you're defending yourself. You have the armour on. But to somehow recite something and pretend that gives you the armour is not true. And then uh, he talks about the weapons that we have. We have the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. And we have prayer, powerful, two powerful weapons uh, that we have to defeat the enemy. Paul seems to make a point that we need to defend ourselves more than we need to attack. You can make a lot out of that or little. Uh, some people uh, are more attacking 
in their Christian life than they are defending. Yet, mostly, if we walk in this world with these virtues, he cannot attack us. We're safe from his attack. And yet, some are called to take the battle to the enemy. And uh, probably more and more of the church need to rise up and to take the battle to the enemy. Well, we're going to stop there, and after the break, we'll come back and look at some of uh, Satan's strategies to defeat us. Welcome back. I need to say that this is uh, the last uh, teaching before Easter. Uh, We have a three-week break, and we'll be back on the 25th of April, and we'll be looking at the subject of practicing the presence of God. Uh, we're only back for one week and then it's the bank holiday the following week so uh, we, we can't just keep missing otherwise it pushes you right into the summer so we're back for a week on the 25th we break the following week the first Monday in May and then we'll be back and run all the way through and then July so the first the first series we're doing is practicing the presence of God let's bring this uh, series then to a close we're going to look at the strategies of Satan, his plan to defeat us. We mentioned it in that previous lesson about his settled war plan. The devil really has three major strategies. They are to deceive us, to destroy us, or to dominate us. All three preferably, and one leads on to the other. We are the army of God, the children of God, are the army of God. He is our enemy. He hasn't left us helpless. God has given us all the equipment and the understanding that we need to defeat him. And we have special defences against these three uh, strategic attacks of the enemy. Let's look at them in turn. Strategy number one then, Satan is the deceiver. He comes to deceive us. We see in scripture, Satan used his deception to thwart God's plans continually. From the beginning of Earth's reconstruction, as we call it, Satan entered into the garden, remember, as a serpent, and the things that he said to Eve were just deceptions. They were lies. He never spoke the truth to her at all. By getting them to believe his deception, his lies, she disobeyed God, and they lost the authority that they had in the world. And that authority was then handed over to Satan. They made him their Lord, as it were, and so he then had that rule and authority. It also says in the book of Revelation, the devil is responsible for leading the whole world astray. So that's us, we're part of that. It says in Revelations 12 and nine, the great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He is so good at deception. He has worked the craft well. Remember his exalted position in the heavens. He couldn't have been closer to God as a created being. And so he is very wise in all that he does. Today, Christians and non-Christians alike, they're deceived by the devil. The, the Bible repeatedly warns us not to be deceived. 
And he states that at the end of the, the age, uh, many will be deceived. It says in Matthew 25, 4, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. Then in 2 Timothy 3 and 13, it says, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We need this word, you see. We need to stay close to what God has said because his deception is only slight. He just changes the odd word and he can move it sufficiently that we're moving off in a completely different direction, missing God by miles at the end. John, in his first letter, he writes this in 1 John 2 and 26. I'm writing these things to you about uh, those who are trying to lead you astray. So right there in the first century, before John was still alive, these people were pressing in on these church. In uh, John's epistle, he talks about many antichrists rising up. Basically, their lie was, Jesus is not the Son of God. He never came in the flesh. This isn't the real truth. And of course, it was all new to the church and they were easily being confused and led astray. Should they look for something else? Was, was the coming of Jesus and the way that he hurried off the scene, was that the preamble to something? And is Christ here? They were saying Christ is here and Christ is here. And so people were confused so much. And then John responds by saying, they will lead you astray. You must stay close to what God has said. Satan's target for this deception then is your mind. All the time he's attacking the way that you're thinking. The scripture says a person is what he thinks. The way you think is who you are. Therefore what you think then must be very important. You think wrong then your life is wrong. You think wrong your actions are wrong. You think wrong your attitudes are wrong. Thinking wrong will destroy you. Thinking right will build you up. It's really as simple as that. So we need to get as much of this thinking right as we possibly can. We think wrong, we'll act wrong. We are what we think. If you think you're not important and you're not relevant and you can't have much effect on things, then that's how you will live your life. You will draw back, seeing that your whole life practically is irrelevant. Well, that's not how God wants us to think. We can't think beyond what we are. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but we need to think the way that Christ is encouraging us to think. Satan deceived Eve by attacking her mind. Did, did God say that? Are you sure God said that? Didn't he say something like that or something like this? Therefore, we need to guard our mind. It says in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine powers to demolish strongholds. We establish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. He's talking about strongholds. Strongholds in the mind. The devil has been feeding you for a long time things that he wants you to believe and to understand and they, they, they become strongholds. You'd, just, you'd swear by your life this is the way that it is but it's not like that at all. 
these other words indicate that they are of the mind. He talks about arguments and pretensions and knowledge and thoughts. All activities of the mind. Our mind is vital then in the whole strategy of overcoming the enemy. Satan's a liar. Such a liar. Of course, deceivers tell lies all the time. Jesus said, the devil is the father of lies. He said there's no truth in him at all. Lying is his native language. And he was a liar from the beginning. Was he talking about when he was in heaven? Did they hear his lies in heaven, his deception? We've been thinking about that, haven't we, over the past weeks, how he leads this rebellion. How did he get all the other angels to follow him? He deceived them then, even then. He lied to them. He got them to believe exactly. How do you deceive a third of the angelic hosts? Millions and millions of angels. Oh, he's good at it, isn't he? He must be good at it. And then to fall to earth and to deceive, if there was the pre-Adamic race of people, to, to deceive all of them, to lie to them, to beguile them. Oh, he's, he's so good. Uh, he's an angel of light, isn't he? comes appealing to us. He knows the scriptures better than everyone in this room. Everyone watching, he knows the scriptures inside and out. And he uses them to manipulate us and to control us. He lies about God. He lies about Jesus. He lies about the Holy Spirit. He lies about the Word of God. He lies about you. He goes and tells other people about you what you've done and what you haven't done. He makes it all up as he goes along to cause strife and problems between you and your friends or you and the responsibility you have and you and your employees or whatever. He lies. He lies all the time. And sometimes these lies are exposed and you're thinking, where did you ever get that? Who told you that? Where did you hear that? Because I, I don't know. I just heard it. I just heard it. He lies about everything. This is the only weapon he has to deceive us. So we must be on our guard constantly. In, in the Jewish court of law, everything had to be checked out and checked out. It had to be confirmed with witnesses, everything. Nothing was taken. How many times have you heard somebody say something to you about somebody and you just believed it? Uh, we all fall felt that. We didn't check it out. We didn't say, was that true? Sometimes if we knew the person, we'd say, no, that can't be true. I know the person. But many times we just simply believe it. And so he's sowing his lies all over the place. His sole purpose is to get us to ignore the word of God. That's it. Too busy. Too busy to study. Too busy to read it. Too busy uh, to read books that explain uh, what's going on here. Just far too busy. God's word, it says, is eternal. It has life in it. It is life-giving. It is life-changing. It's active. It's sharp. It's powerful. The word of God is the thing that sorts out the truth from the lies. It separates it out for us. The word of God gives us direction. Through it, we can renew our mind and we can end up thinking like God. You say, 
think it, my God? Of course. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. There you go. We can have the same mind that Christ had because God never changes. And as we apply ourselves to God's word, then it becomes understanding who God is. We grow by his word. We can know God by knowing his word. And he reveals his heart to us through his word. It is the mind and heart of God. He speaks to us. He wants to speak to us all the time. You know, it's like in every conversation, some people are very good at speaking, but they're not very good at listening. So they never learn anything. They just talk all the time. I've come to the conclusion that people who talk a lot never listen at all. They fill every space, as it were, with words. When you want to say, now just shut up for a few minutes. Let me say something and listen to what I have to say. But already they're talking some more, so uh, I don't know, sometimes I give up too easily. Um, I like preaching because no one interferes with me and I can say exactly what I like. And usually people are polite enough to listen. I mean, you can always walk out the door, but you're even often too polite to do that. Our defence against the deceiver then is obvious. It's the word of God. It's the only descent, it's the only protection that you have. It's not even what people think or what you feel about something. You can't trust that. It is the word of God. And the word is the sword of the Spirit of God. Remember how Jesus used it in the wilderness led by the Spirit after his baptism in the wilderness, and Satan comes and he uses the word of God, doesn't he? He, he talks to Jesus and manipulates the word. And so Jesus constantly comes back to the word and simply responds to him with the word. And so we have to be wise. Just do what Jesus did. Follow his example. And if we're making that effort, the Spirit of God is only too pleased to draw alongside and to help us. If we have no material for the Spirit to work on, he can't do anything. You must give him something to work with. And sometimes we read something and then the Spirit of God would turn it around so we can see what he really means. But if we never read it or never heard it or never looked at the verse, he's got very little to work with. And of course, as Jesus comes back at the enemy with the word, he runs away from his presence, as it were, and then he's ministered to. Jesus then is our example, and we need to follow him. There is no other way to outwit Satan's deception, to be able to use God's word as our defense. We must know it. Now, there's far too much in there to know in any lifetime. It just has layers and layers and layers and layers of understanding that sometimes we just have a superficial understanding and then someone comes along and preaches that same verse and we see something else, then another man comes along and preaches another verse and we're thinking, I never saw that, I never saw any of that, so we'll never know it all. But that doesn't mean we give up, we press on. So we need to know it, we need to study it. We need to have time, all the time, set aside to study. 
Otherwise, we're never going to grow in this. We're just going to live a life. I understand that. Uh, and some people study easier than others. I understand that. But if we will put ourselves out for what God wants us to do, he will equip us, enable us to do it. We have to memorize his word. That's something I'm not brilliant at. I seem to have to read it many, many, many times for it to stick. Um, we have to meditate on it, allow it to just work within us. But the most important thing is we apply it to our lives. If God has said something, it needs to be inculcated into our life and so it becomes part of us. Otherwise, to have memorised it and to study it and to know it, if it doesn't become part of us, we failed at the last hurdle, which was to make sure we're living the Word of God in our lives every day. If you put a list like that, it sounds daunting, doesn't it? <gasps> Like, I'm never doing enough of it, I'm not reading enough of it, I'm not studying enough of it. No, no, no. God knows how, how we can pace ourselves, what's best for us. The thing is, we must keep coming back to it. Keep coming back and keep pressing on through and we'll find a pace that's good for us. Uh, some people just consume loads of it and study a lot, others much less. But to do nothing is a big mistake in our life. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of God. That's Paul's direction to a young minister. So that's deception. We overcome it simply by applying ourselves to the word of God. We can overcome his deception. The second strategy of Satan is that he is a destroyer. He wants to destroy us. We know that Jesus said himself in John 10.10, 10, he, the enemy, comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy our lives. Peter said this in 1 Peter 5 and 8, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. That's who he is. God is the creator. God speaks things into being, speaks life into being. The devil simply destroys and destroys and destroys. His target is your body. He wants to destroy you physically as a person. We see this very clearly, don't we, with Job, the story of Job. That's a fantastic book, just uh, pulling back the curtain on uh, Lucifer speaking uh, to God, as it were, the destroyer. He destroyed the fruit of his body. He killed all his children. He destroyed the labour of his body. He destroyed the property that he had. And he destroyed the health of his body with painful sores, it says probably a period of nine months to a year. Jesus says this very chilling word, really. He says Satan might be able to kill the body, but he cannot destroy the soul. To think that we could be involved in a war, in a conflict, and some soldiers don't die is ridiculous. There's an assessment made. You can be sure in this present conflict between Ukraine and Russia, there is a figure that is acceptable and another one that's unacceptable. People will die in war 
and we are in a war and many Christians get wiped out. Probably every year a quarter of a million people are killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ throughout the world. A quarter of a million simply because they acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Lord, you see. Surely? Yes. Yeah, those are the figures. Matthew 10 and 28 says, Don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. The weapon he uses then is suffering in our lives. I don't have to convince you of that. You can all look back through your lives and say, yeah, let me tell you about it. Well, we've all got these stories that we could tell our difficult things. We suffered difficult things. And this was just the torment of the enemy. We see in the Old Testament the different saints that suffered. I always uh, laugh to myself when I read through that Hebrews chapter 11, you know, that great chapter of men and women of faith. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't think I would like to have been any of them. I mean, it's grand, the idea of being rem remembered because of your great faith. But would you have liked to be Moses? Or would you have liked to be Noah? Would you have liked to have been Abel? Or would you have liked to have been Enoch? Or, and you go, no, no, it's all right. I'll just stay me and uh, we'll just leave it at that for now. You know, when we think of Joseph and David and Daniel and all these people, they went through tremendous suffering. And they never chose it. They just chose God. And that was the route that it took them on. And yet they're fantastic, wonderful examples to us. And then we come to the New Testament. I often think of Peter, Paul and Mary. Uh, you know, uh, just, just three really that, um, yeah, went through tremendous suffering. But of course, the one who went through more suffering than anyone was the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, he's always an example to us, even in the good things and the bad things. Uh, see, if we're going to stand next to him, we see all the wounds and everything he's been through, but, but nothing happened to us. We would just live this charmed life and oh, there's no scars and no marks. And then we meet the Apostle Paul. Let me tell you about the shipwreck. Let me tell you about three days in the sea. Let me tell you about these times when I was whipped, uh, was it three times with 39? Let me tell you about these times. What happened to you? Oh, uh, nothing actually. I just, nothing, nothing. Uh, not that we're looking for trouble, but it's a warfare, you see. We want to stand our ground. And we want to count it a privilege to stand our ground and maybe to receive some scars in our bodies sometimes for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. He continues today to use this weapon to carry out his mission as the destroyer. God has a plan for each of our lives. He's working it through in our lives. And Satan, his plan is to destroy that plan. That's it, just to thwart it. Send a few demons here, uh, move things there, block something here, cause a problem over there, always bringing destruction into our lives. He wants us to miss, to miss the plan of God by bringing suffering to our lives. Have you ever launched out with God to do something and all you got was trouble. And you're thinking, I don't think I'll do this anymore. I mean, all I'm trying to do is help someone. 
and I get all this flack, I get all this problem, I'm under all this pressure as though I, you know, it's like the Apostle Paul, Lord, I can't cope with this, he's saying, take this, take this off me, I can't do, I can't get it. And God says, no, you just have to put up with this. It, it has a part to play, you see, the suffering. So we shouldn't be shying away from it or dodging it or always trying to miss it. Sometimes we just got to embrace what's coming to us. And what's our defense in this suffering? It's the grace of God. So it was the word of God that can defend us against the deceiver. It's the grace of God that can help us against the destroyer. You see, when it's, when it's all out, hell on earth, when the pressure's on, and God isn't going to lift you out of the midst of it, you say, God, I need your grace because I'm not going to back off. I'm going to go through this. But listen, I can't cope. I need your grace to get through this. This is too difficult for me. I can't do it. I love uh, John Stott's definition of grace. He will stoop down in his love and rescue us. What a wonderful definition of grace. God stooping down to earth and just lifting us or just guiding us through or putting his hand upon us as we walk through the whole thing. We walk in humility then with our God and we rejoice in the hardship. There's no place for moaning and groaning. Just take your stand and walk through it and look to God to give you the grace. We'll know his peace. It's funny, it can be bombs around us, but we know his peace in the midst of it all. He'll guard our hearts as we walk through it. And his delivering hand often lifts us from it. We move now to his third strategy. I've just picked these three as the most important. He comes to dominate our lives. You see, he, he sees himself as one day being the God of this world. Oh, without a shadow of a doubt, he believes it. He believes he will win. And he will dominate the whole world. Not, not rule the world, he will dominate the world. See, he is the prince of the power of the air. And that only fuels his, his dream, his vision, what he believes is going to happen. The whole world, as we read, is under his control and influence. That's feeding it as well. He says, we've got this far. I lost out, but I've won it back again. I will win. I will control the world. He wants to be God. He believes he will win and can gain control of the whole universe. See, with all liars, he believes his lie. Liars do. If you say a lie so many times, you even believe it's true in the end. You do. You just convince yourself. And something in your brain just believes it. But there's another reason why he thinks he's going to win. Because God doesn't allow him to see the truth. 
You see, God's, God's in control of what we see and don't see, what we understand and what we don't understand. If we want to see the truth, he'll reveal the truth to us. If we don't, he won't. Satan is blinded from the truth because God blinds him. It serves the purposes of God to let the Satan think he's going to win. So between himself and God, he's convinced of the whole idea. As the dominator, what he's targeting in you is your will. Not so much your mind, but he wants to control your will. If he can get you to agree with him, he can control your life. That's it. You just have to agree with him. And he uses clever arguments. And the people he uses to convince you, they're clever too. This is what he attempted to do with Jesus, remember? When he went into the wilderness. He, he wanted to control him. So he says to him, see this whole world. I have control over the world. If you bear down to me, I'll give you control of the world. If he agreed with him, he would have been given control of the world, but who would have controlled him? <laughs> of course, the devil would have. The devil would have manipulated him. This is what he wants to do in your life. He wants to control it. If he can convince you to agree with him, he'll control you. He'll control your will, the will of your life. This is what he wanted to do with Jesus. Another thing that Satan uses in this whole thing is this area of pride in our lives. Pride is such an ugly thing that none of us would ever confess to having any of it. It's so ugly. It really is an ugly thing. Satan lost his position, remember, around the throne of God because of pride. He saw himself so beautiful, so talented, so artistic, that pride was the thing that caused his downfall. The first sin of the universe, followed by, of course, rebellion. He uses that same cause as a weapon against Christians so that he can be their dominator. Pride is the opposite to humility. We're encouraged to walk humbly before our God, to walk humbly before one another. In, the pride in, encourages the Christian to look inwardly and to see his own capabilities and to say, I can do this. I'm able to do this. To put trust in himself rather than trust in God. Why don't you admit now that you can do nothing? Nothing. Everything you do is because God gives you the grace and the ability to do it. You can't even draw your next breath unless God permits it to happen. That's the truth. Some Christians have this idea we should do things in our own steam uh, as long as we can do them. And when we get to a place where we can't do them, we then ask God to help us. There's something wrong in that. There's something very wrong in that. 
because the danger is if we do it well, we won't ask him at all. We just do it again and again and again. And we think, I can do this. See, that's pride. We can't do anything, really. Every time I stand to bring a teaching, I confess to God, God, I can't do this. This is beyond my physical human uh, capabilities. Oh, I can get up and talk, but that's not what I want to do. I want to communicate truth. I want to inspire people to lay hold of the truth and to love God more. I can't do that. There's no way I can do that. I might sell you a second-hand motor car, I might get away with that, but I'm not going to inspire you to believe and to put your trust and your hope in the living God. That is beyond me. I can't even start to do that. Even if I'm invited to speak, the first question I ask is, what am I supposed to speak about? God, show me, start me there. So he gives me a subject and then I open my Bible or I get an and I say, Lord, you've got to help me all the way through this because I can't do this. You've, you've helped me with the first step. You've got to help me with the next 50 because I can't, I don't, don't want to do any of these steps on my own. I don't want to. I need you. I need you all the time in my life. I need you to be a good husband. I need you to show me how to be a good father. How to be, how, whatever I put my hand to, Lord, I need you to show me how to do it. I'm not relying on myself at all. You say, Philip, you sound like a wreck. I am. I am. I am. I choose to be not independent of God, but thoroughly dependent on him and close to him. We're going to be studying next uh, time we, we look at something about practicing the presence of God. This is what this is all about. Walking with him on a daily basis. He comes to every meeting. He comes to everything we do. He assists us and helps us and supports us because why would you want to do it on your own and not with him? If the one who knows everything and understands everything says, I'm happy to come along with you, never to leave you, never to forsake you, I'm, I'm prepared to give you my mind, my understanding, my everything, why would we ever, ever want to do anything alone? It just doesn't make sense. Making a bed, cooking a cake, don't know anything that you put your mind to, just... We're going to practice how it is to walk with God in these things and be dependent on him. It's not because we haven't got any brains. It's because we have got brains that we're going to depend and rely on him to show us everything. You know, you get these DIY jobs. Take about 10 minutes and three hours later, you're still trying to get the thing apart. I mean, you start to pray then, you know. I mean, well, don't wait. <laughs> don't wait the three hours. Just pray from the start. Lord, how do I do this? Lord, what is this? Lord, show me. Show me. I need your wisdom on this because I think I know the answer, but I've been here too many times and three hours later I'm still trying to get out apart. So please help me to do this. Oh, we're all attacked in this way. Our human ego, our self-reliance, our pride, as it were. 
if we submit to pride, God says, listen, don't come talk to me. Don't come. He says, I'll tell you now, I'll resist you. You walk in humility. You'd be pleased to walk with me in every situation and we'll walk together. As soon as you think you can do this, me and you part company, only over this thing, but you crack on and you do it on your own. James tells us that. But he gives us more grace if we ask him for more. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's what we need, more of his grace. God, give me more of your grace. Satan, he wanted to live an independent life. That's why he did what he did. He deceived Adam and Eve, convincing them to reject God's rule in their lives as well and to live an independent life. And he'll do the same for you. He'll say, he's a liar. He says, well, you do what you can do and then when you can't go any further, you call on me. That's not God. God says, listen, we'll do this together. We'll walk together on this. I'll do it all with you. You don't have to do anything in your own strength. Rely on me all the time. See, God has created us for his good pleasure. He doesn't exist for your good pleasure. Call on him when you want. You exist for his good pleasure. And his good pleasure is never to leave you and never to forsake you, to be with you all the time. That's his good pleasure. That's what he wants. He wants me to be with him all the time. Go to bed at night. Good night, Lord. Wake up in the morning. Good morning, Lord. Okay. All through the day, keep going back to him. Keep talking to him. God has created us for his good pleasure that we might live in his glorious world of freedom and love where he is our God and we are his people and he lives amongst us. That's what God has longed for all the time. That's how he set it up in Eden, that he would live with them in the garden, meet with them all the time, commune with them, teach them things, be with them, strengthen them. And that's what he wants for us. That's what he will get in the next world. Satan has sought to convince mankind that God is a controlling dominator. Unless we keep him happy, do what he wants us to do, he's not happy with us. No, he doesn't control us. He gives us liberty and freedom. But Satan says, now, if I ruled the universe, I'd give you freedom. He says this, you could do anything you want. Wouldn't that spell chaos? But that's what he wants, isn't it? That's what he says. Just do what you like. As long as you don't hurt someone, just do what you like. Live how you like. Act how you like. Just, just do what you like. God never said, do what you like. Because that's chaos. That's chaos. And that isn't life. Life must have rules and boundaries and relationships and understanding of relationships and working in relationships. They're almost perceived as, and in this is true liberty and freedom. That's the only way it works. The truth then is the exact opposite of what Satan offers us. And what is the defense against 
the one who seeks to dominate us. It is the Holy Spirit's rule in our life. The Holy Spirit's rule in our life. He'll lead us, you see, into all truth. The Holy Spirit in us is the source of God's presence and his power in our lives that will strengthen us every day. What does it mean to be charismatic? It means to enjoy the presence of his spirit constantly in our lives. The presence and the very power of God available to us. As we yield our hearts to God's presence, to his power within our lives, where he leads us and we allow his power to come through our lives. And I don't mean supernatural power, just the power to love, the power to be positive, the power to walk in humility, the power to be full of grace towards others. That's the power that God wants to release in our lives. Oh, a few people can fly around and do supernatural powerful things, but just the minority. The ordinary person simply wants the power to live in the way that God would want ordinary people to live their lives full of love and compassion. As we yield to him in our hearts, the dominator will not get a foothold in our lives as he wants to. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. That's what the Holy Spirit's come to do. Help us live a powerful, loving, self-disciplined life. We've come to the end of uh, spiritual conflict and uh, it's been a long journey. We've gone as far back as we possibly can. I'm not saying everything I've said to you is the absolute truth because it's a bit, a bit cloudy over there sometimes to, to see what it actually all is. So everything I've said, um, I believe this point to be absolutely true and I hope it's furnished you with some idea if I've got some parts of it wrong. Generally speaking, I've got the picture right. When Jesus went to the cross, we can finish with this, he disarmed Satan. It says, robbing him of every weapon that he had brandished against God's people for 4,000 years. I don't understand what that means. I just know that if I stay close to God and his spirit rules in my life, there isn't any weapon that's formed against me that can prosper in my life. Through Christ then, we have total victory over the enemy. Total victory. And it is, as we know, the truth and walk in it no weapon will defeat us let us all continue to fight the good fight of faith as timothy was told to do and remember what it means in the av we'll wage a good war let's wage a good war shall we
Let's wage a good war. We might lose a few battles, but we win the war. And God will sustain us and keep us. And in that way we will enjoy all the freedoms that Christ has already won for this world. God bless you all. Amen. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to come on back after the Easter break for our brand new module, Practicing the Presence of God. We hope you've enjoyed the Spiritual Conflict module and if you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, please do so by going onto our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation. And don't forget you can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.